0: <laughs> I'm very happy to set the ball rolling. Michael, picking up on your earlier comment about uh, theology needing to be practical, it's a very practical question, which picks up on your last session about actually creating uh, a heart connection. And I realise, thinking back on the teaching series that we've just done in my church, that although I try to encourage our preaching team to do that, actually they've really defaulted to bringing a lecture. Um, What sort of advice do you think I ought to give them about making this heart connection in practical terms? How how will I shift them from giving a lecture to doing the sort of things that you've been talking about?
1: Well, I think it's partly a question of whether we are sensitive, sensitive to, the, to the distinction. I think many people are just unaware of the distinction. They, they think they're expository preaching when in fact they're not. Um, uh, so if one becomes aware of the difference it should help. But it has a lot to do with spiritual power. Um, when, when Paul says to the Thessalonians, my word came to you not in word only but also in, in authority and with much assurance and by the Holy Spirit He's referring to spiritual power. Um, I don't know there's any easy answer um, where God is at work. Preaching becomes very direct and personal. Uh, when revival comes, preachers change. When revival comes, the first people to change are the preachers. Uh, it's always the beginning of revival when the preachers begin to change. And they change both in their content and in their manner. They they start zeroing in on centralities, whereas when there's no revival, they've written all sorts of things. And uh, there's, no, there's no central content uh, focusing upon the gospel. And also the, the, the manner changes. They have a passion to see people change, and it comes out and everything about them is it, it's, uh, it's part of their zeal for God. So it's a very challenging uh, subject. It's not just a question of technique or anything like that, or laying on ways for people to be touched. When you do that, you, you, you're back into manipulating again. Um, it has a lot to do just with spiritual power and the anointing of the Spirit. Um, in days gone by, there was a time when someone said, well, I'm called to ministry. First question that would be asked is, well, does he have a, has he had a baptism with power? That, that would be the very first question to be answered. And Jesus said, don't, don't, don't go out in ministry yet. You stay in Jerusalem until you are uh, anointed with power from on high so it has a lot to do with spiritual power um, and awareness and hunger from, for God and prayerfulness and so on there's no, there's no answer in the realm of techniques the answer to your question is in the realm of spirituality and hunger for God especially beginning with the preachers the anything then you want to ask that's, that's roughly revolved around what we've been doing uh, I into practicality or something you didn't understand.
0: You did say at the beginning that you chose a broad topic so you could sh- share uh, widely. So maybe I'm taking a liberty of asking a question that's a bit broader oh. than what you've been sharing. Um, this past weekend in Swanwick, you, you mentioned just as an aside as you were speaking, something about, I can't remember the Scripture exactly, but the Holy Spirit being poured out in... People's hearts as opposed as into. Mm. And it was an important distinction. I just hoped you could uh, chat a bit more about that briefly.
1: Well, let me just uh, find a chair. I was uh, thinking about Romans 5 5, where Paul says, The love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Spirit who has been given to us. It's often translated into, but the Greek doesn't say into, it says in. And the idea is that the Holy Spirit is already there in your heart and within the heart he pours out a sense that God uh, loves you. That's an essential part of the outpouring of the Spirit, uh, shedding abroad of the feeling that God loves us. Uh, and we cry, Abba, Father, and so on. Uh, so that's the verse I was referring to, Romans five five.
0: I, I just wondered if you'd say a bit more about, um, and you hinted at it earlier, um, determinism. Determinism. Um, uh, as a result of predestination. So mm. it, you were suggesting that determinism has taken over the real sort of core values around predestination. In, in what ways do we see that? How do we, how do we bump into that? What does it look like? And how is it perhaps misshaping the true meaning, as you understand it, of predestination?
1: Mm. Well, on the one hand, there is... doctrine of predestination. I don't know whether I'll get to it in these times. I might do. But uh, there is a real doctrine of predestination. Romans 9 says, not all are Israel who are of Israel. Not every single person born in the nation is a true child of God. And he goes on to say that uh, Abraham had two sons. Only one of them was a child of the promise. And he goes on to Isaac had two children, Jacob and Esau. And although they'd done nothing, nothing at all good or bad before they were born, before anything ever happened in their life, before they believed, totally without reference to anything in their lives, it was said the elder will serve the younger because Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And Paul's explaining why some Israelites come to faith and others do not. So you have a real doctrine of God's bringing people into being as his children. I don't I don't, like, I don't think of it as much as choosing. I think of it more as bringing into being his people. Um, and so on. So there is adoption of predestination in scripture. But it's not a kind of all-pervasive philosophy that, that uh, is like a kind of uh, background to every area of Christian teaching. It just comes in at certain points. It's, it, it, it's part of our giving glory to God. We, we don't say that we saved ourselves. It's part of our exhortation to live a godly life. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And Paul will say, I beseech you as the elect of God, do do this and this and this. So it's a a kind of motivation in godly living. It gives us assurance of salvation. And that's it. There's there's nothing much more than that. It does not come into evangelism. The Bible never says, I'm I'm going to uh, find out God's elect and bring them to Jesus it doesn't come into evangelism it doesn't relate very much to prayer we don't, we don't uh, stop praying because of election it's not a kind of all, all pervasive thing it just comes in at certain points um, it's best learnt in arrears you don't ask uh, the question what am I destined to do tomorrow you, you look back on your life and you say well I can see that in everything I've done God was at the bottom of it all and even my getting saved it wouldn't have happened if had not been for God you look back on God's plan not forward to it you, you mustn't be too logical. And uh, certain types of uh, predestinarian theology get too logical. You mustn't say, well, because God brings some people to salvation, that he then brings people to damnation or chooses people to hell. That's, that's not in Scripture. and It's a kind of logical extension. You mustn't extend uh, any doctrine logically. You mustn't say Jesus didn't die for everybody. It just doesn't fit Scripture. Jesus did die for everybody. You mustn't say God doesn't love everybody. It's quite plain in Scripture that he does. So election is a mystery, and uh, we allow it to stay mysterious. It operates only in certain limited areas. We don't turn it into an all-pervasive philosophy. We don't logically extend it to say things Scripture does not say. We just stay with what is in Scripture, let it be there as a mystery. But it's a very encouraging mystery. It makes us know that a uh, God will fulfill his purpose in our lives in history, it's very encouraging but we don't extend it or extrapolate it
0: and
1: that's what determinism does basically it, Well, do Bi- biblical predestination and determinism is determinism makes a kind of logical um, uh, deduction that because things are within the plan of God therefore we don't have to respond or we're not responsible it's just a, a kind of fixed thing that's not the biblical approach God's will does get done, but it gets done through us, through our praying, through our faith, through our preaching. Um, So it's not determinism, it doesn't cancel out our involvement and responsibility.
0: Those two things have got quite confused, I think, for many Christians. Yeah. But determinism is the stronger, often, influence than the sort of predestination that you've just described, I think, is so helpful.
1: Well, I would like to think that you're wrong. I, 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 the thought that you're right fills me with horror. I would like to think that most Christians with a strong view of inaction and predestination are not fatalists. They, they preach. One thinks of people like George Whitfield and, and Carl Spurgeon and Calvin. These people had strong views of predestination. They also had strong views of responsibility. They preached uh, constantly. I mean, Calvin preached every day of his life almost. Uh, so you can't say that they were fatalists, that they were not. Well, I think um, that was
0: true then. I think now, though, many Christians feel as if or are, have been overtaken by the determinism sort of worldview world view that I think is very strong,
1: particularly
0: mm. in, in the UK and Europe. That's my experience.
1: Mm. Okay. So they overlaid
0: that on their Christianity, meaning that well, they, they it, absolve
1: themselves of the responsibility. Is it said of the people themselves, or is it their critics saying that that is true of them. I don't know these people to themselves. When a, when one thinks of, of the greater predestinarians of Scripture, uh, they they include everybody who's great. I mean, who, who who is powerful in the Christian Church who's not a predestinarian? I can only think of one, and that's Wesley. I mean, Wesley did not like this doctrine. He had all sorts of objections to it, and the the Wesleyan tradition uh, has, 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 doesn't like this kind of line. But apart from Wesley, who I would think. Uh, I think he did believe in God's sovereignty, but he wasn't totally consistent, and there were things he was worried about unnecessarily. But he was a strong believer in human sin and man's need of grace. He was, he was within a hair's breadth of believing it, but not quite. Um, so he introduced a different kind of a uh, tradition. But leaving aside Wesley, everybody else is great, virtually, is of this opinion. Augustine, even in, even in the Catholic Church, the greatest Catholics were Thomas Aquinas, and the Jansenists even before Rome defined its doctrine and ruled these things out the greatest Catholics were were predestinarians and uh, the Puritans all the reformers, all of the Puritans all of the great priests of the 18th century Bishop Ryle, Charles Spurgeon Hudson taylor you you name them and they they have a strong view of God's uh, sovereignty but they're not fatalists People often say, oh, well, that implies you're a fatalist. But that's, that's not so much the people themselves. It's more someone expecting them to be sort of logical and predestinate a fatalist in that sense. But I don't think so many people are guilty of it. I think a few are. I think a few people get such a grip of God's sovereignty that they become lazy and idle. But in which case, uh, they're not quite grasping the scriptures. Um, but I don't think that's a kind of majority view. I would like to think it's not.
2: Um, Michael, I just was thinking of that thing of you said about purist and applied theology in, in preaching. But um, I th- could you share something of what are for you when you are preparing? What are the keys for you that brings out that sense of that, that wonderful cutting edge in the preaching that's that can be applied to people's lives, the process you go to in Mm. processing God's Word and turning it into food for people.
1: Mm. Well, Charles Spurgeon said, he who would prepare little must prepare much. Uh, And what he meant by that is, if you don't need to prepare much on the occasion, the reason why is there's a lot of preparation in the background. Um, So... I, I don't like this idea that you prepare sermons for people. To me, that's terribly unspiritual. Is it something that they need that you don't? Uh, is, is it really, are we producing a kind of work of art for people to admire? You know, I, don't like, I don't like the idea of preparing sermons. I don't prepare the sermon. I prepare the material. I want to know what I believe. I want to read my Bible every day. I want to study it. And when I'm making notes, I scribble it down in points, and they very easily become sermons. But um, uh, Spurgeon said, he who would prepare little must prepare much. So he would, yeah, who would prepare little must prepare much. He, and if you went to see Spurgeon, he, he had 14,000 books on his bookshelves. He'd be working sitting at his desk all morning every morning. But actually when it came to preaching, I can tell you when he prepared his sermons, he prepared his Sunday evening s- s- sermon on Sunday afternoon. He prepared his Thursday evening sermon riding in the horse and carriage on the way to church. Um, in other words, he, he was very... Uh, the last minute issue in terms of his, of his preaching and I think it's a good way to do things if you can I mean people have different gifts some people can think on their feet some people can't they really do have to have it all written out and strong notes and points and things they, they're not very good at thinking on their feet if you can do it the freer you are the better and, um, and uh, a preacher I think should grow in freeness grow in, grow in mm-hmm. ability to be able to speak at the instant and when revival comes you're, you're preaching every 10 seconds with zero notice. Um, but you do have to do the, the background, the, 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 the sort of homework. So if you say to, to me, how long did you prepare that sermon? I might say, oh, 10 seconds sitting on the chair before I started. I might say, oh, it's taken me 40 years. And each, each sentence would be true. Either way, it would be true. Um, so I, I, but I believe in, in freedom. And uh, the freer we are, the more likely we are to be able to speak this power.
2: I was trying to justify this question. Um, this particular one was about the thief on, the, on, on Jesus' right, and Jesus saying, Tonight you'll be with me in paradise. Um, sometimes when you share salvation, people want to know what happens after I die, um, and where, where Paul says the Spirit goes to be with the Lord, yet there's recognition in heaven. So uh, what's your understanding in that area of going to be with the Lord when the body comes later on. So, mm. on death, uh, where Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise, mm. and that's only the spirit, but still there's recognition. Mm. Mm.
1: Well, <coughs> <coughs> in plenty of scriptures that teach that we go to heaven when we die. Uh, Philippians 1, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Uh, the one you've quoted from Luke's Gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, if this, this, this temple is taken down. There's another one, uh, and uh, we're absent from our body and present with the Lord plenty of scriptures that uh, teach we go to be the Lord when we die. Um, What one might debate a bit is um, when you receive the resurrection body, the the traditional answer is that um, the resurrection is at the last day and so you are only spirit in between your death and the final resurrection so that you're a kind of soul in heaven um, that's the sort of traditional view and I suppose it must be the majority view I am not convinced by it I think we get a resurrection body at death when Paul says my, uh, if this body of ours this tent in which we'll be taken down there's another one he, he doesn't say there's another one in 2,000 years time he just says there's another one we, we, this, this body goes and we go another one um, Jesus saw Moses uh, on, the, on the Mount of transfiguration. They saw Moses and Elijah, and they recognized them. Uh, I don't know how easy it is to recognize a ghost or a spirit. Um, and uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is in, is in hell, and he's complaining about uh, being thirsty. He had to be thirsty. He had no body. Uh, I think there's plenty of evidence that we get a body, we get an interim body. Just as judgment is, is, is uh, we, we think of judgment as the last day yet the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. Um, and yet we're judged in the body. we give given account in the body of the deeds done in the body. So I think there's biblical evidence that uh, the last day is not so much the day when these things begin. It's more the day when these things are presented and everybody sees It's it a public event. Everybody sees that justice has been done. But that uh, actually these things are in, in the beginnings of them Come the very moment we die. So I believe there's a judgment after death, which is very clear in Hebrews 9. What, where I might be saying something which is a bit unusual is I believe there's a body, at death, either either the beginnings of the resurrection body or an interim body. There's some kind of body even before we get to the final judgment day with the resurrection. where the resurrection is some, I don't know how it all fits together, but it's some kind of a glorious manifestation of a, of a the body we've, we've had, or maybe it, maybe, it's an, maybe it's a, one body is a kind of interim body and we get the final body of glory. But there's some kind of body at death. And even when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't his final body shining in glory. There's no shining in glory in it. It, was, it wasn't the, uh, the, the final glory, even for Jesus. Um, so maybe, maybe the resurrection takes place in stages and we get the beginnings of it at death. I, I'm inclined to believe something like that. But, uh, but I'm mean, slightly in a minority in believing that. Not the only one, but it is a minority.
2: <laughs> Michael, yesterday you said Christianity in this country had fallen. Why is this?
1: Well, I gave some reasons. I said it was, uh, we began to attack the Bible inside the churches, which is a very fatal thing to do. And I think we began to adopt a non-experiential view of the work of the Spirit, which is a very fatal thing to do. And we've steadily declined since that time. Until we get back to trusting in the power of God's Word and God's Spirit plus nothing, I doubt whether there'll be any great change. We're all too clever. We're all all good at organizing and marketing. We don't don't need those for it. We'd be good enough on our own. until we feel that we are not capable on our own, I doubt whether we will see God moving in power.
2: Uh, Michael, uh, you alluded to the fact uh, yesterday that um, it's it was as if uh, the wealth of the Egyptians, Pharaoh, was actually prepared by God. To lay the foundation for the um, Israelites to be called on by God. And by extension, you almost seem to be saying, and uh, I've had this said before, that this, uh, all great civilizations basically were prepared by God for the furtherance of the world, like the, uh, the, um, the British civilization rose to power only to receive the word and then cascaded it out, outwards to Africa and further afield. And um, just the the most recent, the American civilization as we know it, rose to power only to be used to even further the word of God. Is this the case actually, or is there something else going on? Well, I don't think I ever use the word prepared.
1: I think I would prefer to use the word allowed. God allowed Babylonian tyranny to arise and he used it. And it it prepared the whole world for Jewish people being everywhere, synagogues being everywhere, people already having a a little knowledge of the Old Testament message. And then the Greeks came along and they, it meant the whole world, uh, the the so-called civilized world, the uh, world functioning with Utensils of civilization and so on, they all spoke one language. I mean, just think Paul could travel everywhere in the entire empire, never having to learn the language, never, never needing a visa. That really makes me jealous. But, uh, <laughs> um, because there was just one civilization everywhere. Romans built their roads for their armies, but Paul marches along them preaching the gospel and uh, goes along the network of all these Roman citizens and so on. So all of these civilizations actually did prepare the way for the gospel. And the same with the British Empire. The British Empire, they went out to Africa for their own reasons uh, and then the empire upon which the sun would never set, one day the sun did set. And uh, that was the end of that for, for, for them. And in the 50s and 60s the British Empire came to its end. But they left their language behind. Everywhere in Africa, preaching, I can, I can go to Namibia or Uganda or Ghana. I don't know if learn the language the British left their language behind. Um, so what enables the gospel to be preached all over the world at the moment are it's the languages that the colonial empires left behind. I can't believe that God wasn't in that and didn't have some uh, uh, hand in that. I don't, I don't like the word. I wouldn't like to say that God created colonialism, but I would like to say that He overruled it and used it and exploited it for His kingdom. Men and women do what they want to do. But God so controls it that it achieves not their will, but God's will. And the greatest example that is the cross. I mean, the cross in itself was wicked. By the hands of wicked men, you, you delivered him up, says, says Peter on the day of Pentecost. Yet in the same passage, he says, delivered up by the definite foreknowledge and counsel of God. It's both an act of wickedness on the part of the men who crucified Jesus, yet it's God's way of salvation, delivered up by the definite foreknowledge and counsel of God. So something which is wicked in itself, God can so control it that it does not do their will, it does his will. And I believe we are seeing the same thing. I believe that the insurgents of Islam will not do its will, it will do God's will.
2: Um, just
0: before you said something about faith is believing God and not believing in God. Can you explain what you meant by that?
1: Well, you, you can believe in God but not believe God. There are also people who believe in God, but when God speaks to them, they don't believe what God says. Faith is believing what God says, just believing that there's a God there somewhere. It's when God speaks, you're convinced that what he says is true and you believe, you believe God.
0: Um, Michael, up in Swanwick, you spoke about um, Paul saying that the body, we wait for the body to be redeemed. And you touched briefly on sin. I can't remember what you said about it this morning. But are you saying that we're waiting for the body to be redeemed, so all the way through our life we're going to suffer with sin because the sin is warring against the spirit, the flesh? Um, or do you believe that Paul overcame it in his body before he went to be with the Lord and there was a special anointing that Paul had or it's just something we're going to battle with until we go to be with the Lord?
1: It's something we're going to battle with until we go to be with the Lord. Um, Yes, the body is not yet redeemed. That's, That's the teaching of Romans 8. We are waiting for the redemption of our body. Now, we're not ruled by the flesh. We're not, we're not under the dominion of the flesh. We're not under the dominion of sin. We have died to sin. We have died to the law. We've died to Satan. We've died to death. We're not even going to die. He who believes in me shall never die. The fact, the fact that we're not under the dominion of sin, and we're not, and the fact that we can get a victory over sin, which we can, and the Holy Spirit is within us, and the sin shall not, have dominion over us because we're not under law, we are under grace. So the possibility of having uh, defeating sin and being able to put down sin is there for us. But it doesn't mean that the problem has totally disappeared. We're never going to be tempted and no fle- there's no flesh there anymore and that uh, sin can't tempt us and so on. That, that is not going to come until we go to heaven. Someone once asked me, uh, is, there any, is there any experience that we can have such that we will never sin again? And I said, yeah, it's called dying. <laughs> and uh, when we die and we get a new body and in, in the heavenly glory, we won't be tempted. since Sin and Satan won't be there. We'll be released forever. But meanwhile, that battle's never going to go away. It's always going to be there to some extent. We, we make progress and we grow and we get increasingly conform to Jesus, we, we trust. But... Uh, our dying day, it never is totally eradicated until we see Jesus. We know that we shall see, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we see him, the very sight of Jesus will drive sin away from us forever.
2: Um, just wanted to know your take on destiny. I know it's not slightly off the topic, but like, is there one specific destiny for Helen Riss or whatever, whoever is or. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really a question of how we think of guidance and the the future of our lives and so on. Uh, And this is where I think the the predestinarian question comes in again. You mustn't think of it as a kind of blueprint, a kind of thing that's fixed in concrete. And so if you sort of blow it, you've blown it forever. It's more like uh, driving along a highway, and if you take a wrong turning, well, all being well, you can get back on the route again with another turning. You, you don't think of it in a kind of a this way, as though there's a kind of blueprint, which if you don't follow, the whole building collapses. Think of it in a living, dynamic way. You make a mistake, your sins are forgiven, you get back on track again. Uh, I, whether that's the ultimate truth, I don't even know. But it is the way we to think about it. We to think about a living relationship with a person. You, you don't... Uh, you don't ask the question, what am I predestined to do tomorrow? You just do your duty, follow the Lord's guidance, and stay on track. And at that point, it's a mistake to ask predestinarian questions. You can say at any point of your life, God's got a will, got a general plan for your life, but don't, don't uh, think of it as, as uh, every minute detail being, as it were, fatalistically ordained. Maybe it's true, who knows? But uh, we don't think that way. We think of a personal relationship with a living saviour. Okay, that helped you a bit. Mm. Okay, well, let's pick up again then. I'm still uh, pursuing these themes about salvation. I was saying that um, it's good to uh, look at these things in an orderly manner. We're going to have a break at three, is that right? Good to think of these things in an orderly manner. And it's good to begin with the big things. Think of the big things and keep things simple. And although there are many details, you don't have to always be going into the details at every one occasion, um, although it's good to look into the, the wealth and the riches of all that God does for us. <coughs> so now I want to proceed then with, with some of the details. And again, I divide it up a little bit. There are things that God does in our lives even before we come to faith. Uh, the Bible says things like this, or Jesus said things like this. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's such a thing as the drawing or the pulling work of God. And uh, none of us ever come to salvation without that drawing of, of the Father. There is the word quickening or made alive. We have it here in Ephesians 2 that I was reading early on, where Paul says we were dead in sins, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive, or the uh, I quite like the old 17th century word, he quickened us, he put a bit of life in us. And you'll notice it's not, it's not the same as being raised because verse 6 says and he raised us. So he, was, he put life into us, he quickened us, he woke us, woke us up, and he raised us out of this spiritual death. So there is that work of quickening, where God uh, wakes you up, or he awakens you to the things of God. You are you're not interested in the things of God. You, you, you regard the Christian gospel as a load of nonsense. And then one day God works in your life. And he wakes you up and you start thinking about these things as never before. You've been awakened. You've been quickened. You've been made alive. It's not, it's not that you've walked out of the tomb yet, but uh, you're beginning to. There's the beginnings of a, a stirring in your soul. And suddenly you, you're interested in things that you never were interested in before. Um, I think not. That's Ephesians 5 where I think Paul's writing to Christians saying, don't be sleepy, wake up and Christ will give you life. I don't think it's, it's not an evangelistic verse. No. Um, I think it is the same as being born again. You see the word regeneration or new birth is used in different ways. It's a kind of picture language of a child being conceived and born. But um, it's used in two different ways. Um, I'm trying to find a way of putting it to you without being confusing. Let me put it like this. There is a work of the Spirit even before you get saved. Even before you come to faith, there's a work of the Spirit. And, but it's also true that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you're given life. So there's a work of the Spirit before faith, and there's a work of the Spirit after faith. People often use the word uh, regeneration in a way that's confusing. People use the word regeneration in different ways. Sometimes they're referring to this quickening, this work of God, as it were, bringing us and drawing us to, to faith in Jesus. Sometimes they use it of, the, of our being given life as a result of our coming to faith in Jesus. But um, it's all there in the scripture. There is a work, even before we believe, no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. One Corinthians chapter 12, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God and it requires that God should uh, wake us up and uh, call call us into life, as it were. And scripture uses various terms, drawing, calling, quickening, enlivening, it uses those terms. Or 1 John chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been, past tense, has already been born of God. There's a quickening bringing you to, to faith. So those I put all those things under the headings of the beginnings of God's grace, even before we believe there's a work of the Lord drawing us and calling us and enlivening us and waking us up, um, Was the theologians call prevenient grace, grace that goes before us and brings us to, to salvation and to faith. And then the Lord brings us to repentance and faith. We've thought a bit about faith, but uh, repentance comes into that. And um, again, you have to use language clearly. There's two words in the New Testament which are linked with our idea of repentance. There's the word normally translated to repent, it really means to, to rethink, to think again. Um, the Bible tells us to repent and believe. It always puts that word before faith. We repent and believe. It's not the other way around. Um, repentance is when you change your mind, when you admit you're wrong. It's the very first breath of faith when you begin to believe. The first thing that happens is you realise you've been wrong so far and you change your mind. Um, it does not mean Live a godly life. If you put live a godly life and believe, you're, you're almost implying that you can live a godly life before you believe. And sometimes people have said that. People like the Puritans, they tended to almost try and get you saved before you were saved. You had to be so godly in, in the course of seeking God, you had to turn from sin and do this, and, the, and then you believe. It almost put the godly life before faith, which is, which is not biblical teaching. And there's another word, in the New Testament, which means turning around. You turn away from sin. You're converted. Um, and that word is always put after faith. You believe and you turn to, to God. That word's always put after faith. And so repentance, the, the English word repentance, well, it's always been a bit con- used, used a bit confusingly in Roman Catholic circles. It was doing penance. You, you did certain things to compensate for the Wickedness of your sin, and they they uh, did penance to get themselves ready for grace. And uh, Luther discovered in, in the Reformation. Luther one day, uh, learning Greek, discovered that the Latin version was always a mistranslation. The Latin version said "Agite poenitatem," do, do penance. One day, Luther just translating the Bible, suddenly discovered it didn't mean doing penance at all. It meant changing your mind, turning to the Lord, repenting in that sense. And then the Puritans tended to, to define repentance as turning from all known sin. Which again, if you um, put it before faith, you say you turn from all known sin and then you believe, you've really got a kind of salvation even before you believe. And um, the Puritans tended to do that. And that leads to real loss of assurance. You'll always be asking the question, have I repented enough? Have I got to turn from all known sin? Uh, real faith does that. Well, have I really done that? If you, have, if you put anything you do as the means by which you save yourself, you will save yourself. You will always be asking the question: Have I done it enough? Have I, uh, if, if it's mastering the faith, have I mastered it enough? If it's if it's turning from sin, have I turned from sin enough? If it's uh, being sorry for my sins, have I been sorry enough? Anything where you're you're putting it upon yourself, you will have that problem. Have I done it enough? You know the story of Luther. He would go to, to the confessional as a Roman Catholic monk, and sometimes he would keep his confessor there for five hours. He would think of every possible sin he'd ever committed over his life, trying to get forgiveness from the priest, trying to remember everything. When the priests saw him coming, they would say, no, no you take him, I don't want him here. For five years, they, they would sort of not want Luther to come. And he would keep them there for hours, and then they would finally release him. And then as he was walking back to his monastic cell, he would think of another one and turn around and come back again. He could never get to the point where he felt he'd confessed his sins. You, you start putting something where the onus is upon you, you will always have the problem whether you've done it enough. But repentance is, is just seeing that you're wrong. You don't even have to use that word. John's gospel never uses it. John never, ever speaks of of repentance not that he doesn't believe that we turn from sin, of course we do but um, you don't have to use that word, Jesus didn't Paul didn't say to the Philippian jailer repent and believe, he just said believe, believe in the Lord Jesus, repentance is sort of included you have to change your mind before you can really believe uh, and so on so um, don't overdo repentance in such a way that you turn it into a kind of a legalism that you be godly before you're saved but don't overdo it in that way and uh, the word "repent" basically means to uh, to change um, your mind. I'm trying to find a verse. I've just found it, Acts chapter three, verse nineteen, where you get both words: "repent," therefore, and "turn." You, you get both words in the same verse. One verse, one word is "metanoia" or metanoiaeo. the other word is "epistrophe," turning, or "epistrepso" to turn. There's two different words there. One is always mentioned before faith. The other is always mentioned after faith. Repenting is initially just seeing that you're wrong and coming to Jesus. It will lead to the new life. but The new life is after you're saved. You don't want to live the new life before you're saved. And you mustn't put turning from all known sin before believing. That is a kind of false teaching. And then, so when this person, we're imagining this Christian being saved. He's being drawn by the Lord He's brought to change his mind about his life. He believes in Jesus. And then there are all of the many, many things that uh, happen, happen to you when you put your faith in Jesus. And there are two or three big ones. The first one is you are justified, having been justified by faith. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you are, your sins are accounted as gone. They've been put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God declares that you are righteous, And justification is a legal thing. It's not uh, anything in you. It's not you're being made a new person. That will come as well, but that's not the meaning of justification. Justification is when God declares that the charges against you are dropped, your sins have been atoned for, paid for, punished for by Jesus, and God can view you as sinless from now on. In Kenya... I always have difficulty because I don't know of a clear way. I'm just looking at my Kenyan friend sitting in the back row. I don't know of a clear way of speaking about justification in Swahili. I've never been able to do it. Uh, in, in Swahili, justification is haki, which sort of means cleansing. It's not really uh, dealing with justification. When I'm preaching and I'm being interpreted, if I'm preaching on justification, I normally will do a little bit with my interpreter before I start. I say, well, imagine the man's at the high court... And he's accused of uh, maybe breaking the speed limit and he's taken to court and uh, the judge looks into his case and uh, finally uh, the judge says, no, I pronounce you not guilty. And my interpreter has to try and translate that. He finds it difficult because it's not an easy way of saying not guilty. He will normally say, I reckon that you've got no sin. That's normally what he will say. It's not easy to put justification in Swahili. But it means legally the judge pronounces that no charge is standing against you. In some languages, it's hard to say that. But uh, in which case, you have to find a way to to, to make the point that no charge is there against you. And um, in Swahili, it's quite difficult, I think, uh, to uh, clearly talk about justification. But um, it's a legal thing when there's no charge against you. It's not the same as being born again. It's not an experience. It doesn't take place in you at all. It takes place in the heavenly court. It's God pronouncing in the heavenly court that your case is settled. It's going through the judgment day and being acquitted, not because of how good you are, but because Jesus has lived for you. Jesus has died for you. He's paid the price of your sins. He's lived the life that you should have lived. And his righteousness is reckoned to be yours. You're in Christ, and you're declared righteous in Christ. So justification is... Um, God's acquitting you and declaring you righteous and you are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ from the very point of your faith and so you have peace with God. You can, you, you can relax. Peace in relationship to God. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God, says Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. And then there is the new birth. God gives you, when God has accepted you, God gives you new life. He doesn't give you new life until he's accepted you. The first question that comes up when you want to, want to be in relationship to God is, will God accept you? Why should, why should God give you anything? Why should he hear your prayers? You're a sinner, you've sinned against him. How, how can he relate to you at all? Before he can bless you, he must accept you. Before you can be the object of his, of his generosity, you, you must be right with him and, and acceptable to him. And so there's a question that comes up before we get a relationship to God. Will God accept us? Can we go into his presence? Will he listen to our prayers? What happens if we die? Will we go to heaven? Is, is there any acceptance? And so justification is first. It's God's accepting us, saying, I pronounce that You're righteous in my eyes. My son has died for you. He, he's taken your sins, you've got his righteousness. It's a double exchange. He's taken his sins upon upon, him, upon himself. You've taken his righteousness upon you. You are righteous with the righteousness of Christ. It's not your righteousness. Even if you've been a Christian for 20 years, it's still not your righteousness. You only ever stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even the day before you die, your righteousness will not be good enough to stand before God. It still needs the righteousness of Jesus' it's As your way of standing before the Lord. But then God can bless us and the next thing he does is he gives us the new birth. He gives us life. We are born again. We come, not only are we quickened to bring us to faith, but we come to Jesus and we are given life. We are given eternal life. We are given the Holy Spirit and we come alive. And this is different, not justification. You mustn't confuse the two. Being given life is something that happens in us. Justification happens outside of us in the, in the courts of God. The new birth happens in us. We are born again. We are given liveliness and life and sensitivity to God. The heart of stone is taken away. The heart of flesh is given to us. We are sensitive to God. And we have the Lord in our lives. So justification and regeneration... Justification, being given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. New birth, being given the life of the Holy Spirit. These are both involved in salvation. Preachers often tend to uh, focus on one more than the other. Um, Billy Graham has a book called Peace with God. There's no chapter in it about being justified. It's only about being born again. I was in the Protestant Bookshed Centre in Fleet Street yesterday, I think it was, and uh, I picked up a new book of systematic theology written by a Dutchman and just looked at the contents. I noticed under the section of salvation, it had no chapter on the new birth. Penny Graham has no chapter on justification. A Dutch theologian writes about justification, but has no chapter on the new birth. Charles Hodge, the famous uh, lecturer at Princeton College in uh, America, writes a book called The Way of Salvation. It's all about justification, no chapter on the new birth. People tend to go to, to one way or the other. Um, but we need both, and it's a bit dangerous not to have both. If you preach justification, but you don't preach the new birth, you say, well, Jesus has died for me, I'm righteous, I'm, I'm accepting that. You are sort of becoming a bit of a Sandemanian. You, you're just assenting to a proposition. You're just uh, feeling sure because of uh, Jesus died, but it's not doing anything to you. It's not changing you. You're just accepting a proposition. If you have justification but no teaching about new births, you're in danger of just being some sort of a guy who assents to a bit of teaching, and that's it. No new life at all. And that's the danger of certain types of evangelism you get the kind of evangelism that says come forward say this prayer after me i believe jesus died for my sins and uh, i give my life to jesus and the evangelist will say well you're a christian now all you've done is is recite some sentence recite a prayer well maybe it's genuine maybe you are truly saved but the question is not, do you believe in these things? But Are you born again? Are you a new person? Is your life never going to be the same again? Have you received life into your life? It's not just reciting a sentence. It, it, it is being born again. And you, 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 must, you must know something of the life of God. It's dangerous to be, as it were, trusting just in a bit of doctrine if there's no life in you. There must be life in you. You must be born again. And, and you must have that life and if you don't preach the new birth and you do preach justification you are in danger of having a kind of pharisaical church where all these people said no we're right with god but there's no life in them they're not alive um on the other hand if you only preach the new birth but you have no doctrine of justification you tend to end up very legalistic you know i'm I'm born again i live a new life i'm a holy person And you're not really standing on the righteousness of Jesus. You're standing on on your own life within your soul. You're really justifying yourself by, 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 by your life. Now, there's a kind of twin there. You're receiving a kind of a Siamese twin into your life. On the one side, there's a status. You're in Christ and covered by the righteousness of Christ. On the other side, there's life. Don't try to have the status without life. Don't try to have life without the status have these two things, you must, be, you must preach them both. You must preach the new birth, you must preach justification, but you, but you mustn't preach justification without preaching the new birth. You must insist that people are born again, have new life. They're not saved unless there's new life in them. He that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son has no life, says 1 John. So, justification, regeneration, and then adoption. We're made the children of God. And we were looking, some of us were looking at that in, in Derbyshire. God, God uh, gives you all the privileges of sonship. He cares for you. He protects you. He gives you his spirit. Because you are sons, God gives you the spirit of his son. It's Romans chapter 5 to 8 that work all these things out in, in detail. Um, Romans chapter 5 to 8 has about. Uh, four or five sections in it in chapter 5 1 to 11 it is the things that come to us immediately we put our faith in jesus having been justified by faith we have peace with god we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand you have a, a standing in grace we rejoice in hope of the glory of god you're expecting to be in heaven we understand our sufferings we know that god is is a is um producing character in us we have a sense of God's love the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts these are the immediate things that come to us having been justified by faith and then Romans 5:12 to the end of the chapter makes a big point that we have a new position we were in adam <coughs> now we are in Christ and we are once sin and everything we get through Adam reigned over us. Now grace more than abounds. It is more powerful than anything that came to us through our fall in Adam. Romans chapter 6 makes the point that we've died to sin. We are in Christ. Christ is finished with this world. We are in Christ and we in Christ have died to the whole realm of sin. Sin is not ruling or reigning over us. It's not that we should have died to sin or we're trying to die to sin or we're dying to sin more and more. It's referring to one single event. We've been put in Christ by the Spirit and we have died to sin. It means we've been removed out of the reign and the rule of sin. doesn't mean we can't sin at all. doesn't mean that we can't be tempted. Uh, but it does mean we've been removed from sin's kingdom. It doesn't rule over us. does not lord it over us. And the same thing is true of the law. We have died to the law through the body of Christ. And Paul works it out in the heart of Romans 7, is in verses 5 and 6. When we were in the flesh, the law just made things worse for us. But now we are released from the law, we walk in the spirit, says verse 6. The rest of Romans 7, which is controversial, people argue about it, but I would be willing to defend the proposition that the rest of Romans is expanding verse 5. Verse 5, when we were in the flesh unsaved, our sinful passions aroused by the law. The law just made things worse when we were unsaved but tried to keep the law. It just produced death and despair in us. I would say Romans 7, 7 to the end just develops that. The only thing the law can do... In an unsafe person, is bring despair and wretchedness and failure, and you end up, with well, who can possibly deliver me? You don't even know. Uh, that's all the law can do for you if you are unsafe, but you try to start keeping it. Paul describes that in order that we might not live that way, nor that we die to the law by, by the body of Christ upon the cross and live by the power of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 brings the section to a close. If, we've, if we're at peace with God, if we're in Christ, if we've died to sin, if we've died to the law, well, there is therefore now no condemnation. There's nothing left to condemn us. I mean, if we've we finished with sin, we've finished with law, and we're at peace with God, what's left for us to be condemned? There's nothing left. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And he works it out, that we shall never, never, never be condemned. I might uh, come back to that at another time, maybe even today, I'm not sure. But um, there is no condemnation ever. And I would be willing to argue that verse 1, there's no condemnation, is true both objectively and subjectively. What I mean by that is this. That it's true both as a fact and it ought to be true as a feeling. It is a fact that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It ought to be a feeling. There should be no feeling of condemnation to those who are in Christ. I say that for two reasons. Reason number one, because that's what the word means. Go and look up katechrima in any Greek dictionary. It will tell you it means, number one, condemnation, and number two, the experience of being thrown in prison, the experience of a penal servitude, the experience of being condemned. It refers both to a fact and to an experience. That's the meaning of the word. And so Paul is, is saying as a fact you're never going to be condemned and you don't have to feel condemned as an experience. Another reason for saying it is because that's the way he works it out as, as he goes on working this out. He says, well, how can, how can you be condemned? Jesus died, Holy Spirit's been given to you, Jesus is interceding, he's risen from the dead. How, how can you be condemned? But he also works it out experientially. He says we don't go back into bondage. We have the spirit of adoption in whom we cry, Abba, Father. He works it out in two ways. That we don't have to think we're condemned as a matter of fact and we don't have to feel condemned as a matter of feeling. We don't have the spirit of bondage to go back into fear, the kind of fear we were in before. We have the spirit of adoption in whom we cry, Abba, Father, his spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are Children of God. So all of those things, I, I put them all together as, um, as all, among all of the riches of the blessings that come to us at the point of salvation, of our, of our initial salvation. We don't have to preach every detail evangelistically. We don't have to tell everybody everything all in one go. But as we're expounding the scriptures, these riches and treasures of salvation are revealed to us. And there are other things, we're told we're sanctified, we're sanctified forever by the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, we are cleansed, we have the washing of regeneration and renewal, says uh, Titus chapter 3. So all of these things come to us in our first salvation and uh, we spend all of our lives exploring them, looking into them, and the epistles and the letters keep on coming back to it from a thousand different angles, all of these things that come to us at the point where we come to face in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stop there for a while and have a break, and then we'll come back.